And I was 13 and he came to me with those qualifications and said, I, I want you to come and train with me and my group. And I was only 13. And he said, well, you're not going to do our training, but you're going to do your training. I'll tell you what to do. But I want you to be around the highest level of conversation as if you're going for your Olympic gold medal, like right now at 13. I want you to get used to that as being your normal. And he said that a will and talent are something, but it's not enough. You have to learn the art of winning. Winning is a learned skill. And I'm going to teach you that. Thanks all for tuning in to Dreamcatchers, where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dreams. Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got Dr. Jeff Spencer with me today. Jeff, how are things out? We're in the traditional pizza oven time of the year here, so we're boiling and it's always a good opportunity to get up early and get some fitness stuff done and then attack the day with vigor to make the day count. Thanks again for the opportunity. I'm just honored that you come hang out with me for a little bit and share with our listeners. So for those of you who don't know, this guy's the corner man for the Titans of industry. I don't read bios, but if, if you just do a quick Google search, you'll find out that you're in the presence of greatness pretty quickly. And he's a humble person, so he won't ever go down that path with you, but I can tell you that you better get your notepad out because this is going to be a, a deep episode that's going to give you an opportunity to accelerate your performance, accelerate your goals, and just achieve things that you potentially wouldn't have been able to do in the past. And so I like to start off by just letting the listeners know how they can get in contact with you because this is going to be outstanding. Well, that's very generous. Thank you. First off, if you're uh, interested in some of the models and things that we'll be talking about, you can go to beforeyouwin.com, B-E-F-O-R-E-Y-O-U-W-I-N.com. That will give you uh, access to some of the models and things that I've uh, crafted. And then if you'd like to reach out to me uh, personally, if you have some interest in some level of conversation as to your bigger future, et cetera, that would be www.drjeffspencer.com, D-R-J-E-F. S P E N C E R dot com. Awesome. Awesome. So now we got the admin out the way. We can go deep <laughs> and it's going to happen quick, let's ladies go. and gentlemen. <laughs> it's going to happen quick. So let's, let's start out, man. Who are you? Where'd you grow up? For the folks who Googled already, because I, I know that we do a bunch of cyber stalking, they see that you work with Lance Armstrong <laughs> and a bunch of other people. So, like, how does somebody, where, where do you start? Do you just start <laughs> there? How does that happen? It's an evolutionary process. I think that life chooses us if we're a good listener. And when we listen well and we understand how our truth speaks to us, there are opportunities that show up that if we have the courage to engage them, can take us on a path that has design behind it. We may not know exactly what that is, but the path becomes a lot less effortful than having a high ambition where you have to stick your nose to the grindstone and pulverize yourself to get from point A to point B. I feel that if we, again, listen in introspect and we maintain a place of receptivity to revelation, 
about life options. And we know how gravity attracts and draws us towards something. And we know that it's not personal ambition for self-sake only, but it's to show up in the line of duty for something bigger and transcendent. Then life becomes a little bit easier in the magic of the process reveals itself. And then you look back over time at it, well, how did this happen? And that's the way I, I've always had the side to me that I know when I'm called to do something and someone asked me, what would you like to be said about you at the end of your days? And I said that he answered the call. And what I mean by that is that I, again, remain in the state of receptivity to invite the universe, God, however you would like to catch that to reveal to me and how I can be a best service to not only that purpose, but to give back to that humanity in turn, it creates a life of value for myself. And so that's really how the genesis of this all happened. And there's still more chapters to be written. I don't know what those are, but that was it. And then that's where the journey began. Actually, at seven years old, I was inspired to become an Olympian. I thought that'd be cool. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. But then I showed this unusual ability on a bicycle at the age of 10. And I figured maybe that's it. And then I had three angels come into my life that actually enabled many of the achievements that I've created to happen because of them. The first angel was my cycling coach, and he was a three-time Olympian, five-time national champion. And I was 13, and he came to me with those qualifications and said, I, I want you to come and train with me and my group. And I was only 13. And he said, well, you're not going to do our training, but you're going to do your training. I'll tell you what to do. But I want you to be around the highest level of conversation as if you're going for your Olympic gold medal, like right now at 13. I want you to get used to that as being your normal. And he said that a will and talent are something, but it's not enough. You have to learn the art of winning. Winning is a learned skill. And I'm going to teach you that, you know, which you did. And 10 years later, I did become an Olympian. Oh, everything to him and the training group that he invited me into. And then when I was 18 in my sophomore year at the University of Southern California, where I was there on an educational opportunity grant, because I came from a welfare family. Last time I saw my dad when I was 13, I met my next mentor and he was 76 when I was 18. And he was a Renaissance man, truly. He was a Shakespearean actor. He was a playwright, a poet, author won an Emmy for an award-winning film about his creative philosophy. He was a trained university metallurgist. He was a war correspondent in World War I. And he also developed a, a unique type of art glass sculpture that had never been done before. And through an interesting sequence of dominoes falling, he chose me to be his apprentice to create his glass masterpieces. So there's a very unusual pairing like Olympic aspiring athlete in university studying sports science chosen by this person to be his artistic apprentice. It was a very unusual pairing, but he saw something in me. And, and what he did give me is that he, as my cycling coach did, they didn't put things into me. What they did, they awakened that which was already in me. And then they paced the crafting of that to be a usable life skill to be able to execute and manifest the potential within. So I was really lucky in what he did at our breaks when I was helping with his masterpieces. He played classical music to me. He read the great poets. He showed me the great literature. And he said, I need to fill you up on this stuff. And I had a capacity to absorb that. And that actually made me a better athlete, for sure, and made me a better artist. And I eventually showed my art glass in the best galleries in New York City, et cetera, the best shows in the world with the best glass artists. 
that was another facet to me that was obviously had some level of providence attached to it. And then my third angel, when I was uh, in my early 20s, just before I became an Olympian, he came to the velodrome that I uh, was uh, training on and asked me to come by his uh, business afterwards. And he had a massive dignity, as short of stature, a thick French accent. But I, I loved this guy's presence of being. He was gentle, but uh, strong simultaneously. And I found out later why that was. Is he was uh, in a, a German concentration camp for six years during World War II and exposed to the most cruelty uh, that humanity could ever uh, even begin to imagine. I, I hate to even contemplate it. But he had no resentment. He had no anger. He just had pure love and commitment to humanity because of that. So he taught me the, the soul side of me where the, my Olympic coach taught me the body part of it. My mentor with the art taught me the mind side of it. And then he brought the soul into it. So with all of that, it created a very unique composite for me because I had performed at the highest level. You, you can't read about it or study about it. And it, be, it has to be in your DNA and it has to be a lens that everything runs through. And because of that, I eventually gained access as being the guy that could look at the uh, opportunities or the potential within people from every angle and decide exactly what their path needs to be to get them to the place that they could potentially be to create their best legacy and their best contributions. So that's how all the dominoes fell to this point. Man, you just gave me a toy box. I'm going to dive in and pull all the stuff <laughs> out now. I'm ready to dive out here we, dive. <laughs> yeah, here we go. I told you guys it was going to get deep quick. So you said something that made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. You said winning is a learned skill. It is, for sure. Tell us more. I think, first off, we're all born with two parts to our nature. We have a human nature that's our survival instincts that are something that we didn't ask for that's hardwired into us. And when we talk about survival, there has to be a reflex in us faster than we can think. For example, if you're in an intersection with a car and a guy runs a red light, there's something that needs to recognize we need to turn away from that faster than we can think, otherwise we're dead. And so that's one side of our biology that's hardwired, but you cannot create excellence if you're living your life through your survival instincts. You're fearful about everything and you're doing proactive steps against all the details that could go wrong. And sometimes we just identify that with us because it's the first inclination that we have, which is the body's uh, in the mind's highest priority. And then there's the other side of us. That's the champion side. And people say, well, how do you know we have a champion side? I'm not a champion. Well, I, I, I disagree. If you identify with the survival you as you, well, then you're in trouble. But quite honestly, Jerome, I've never met a person that could wait to get up and fail. I've never seen it. And so there is a drive, perhaps even deeper than our survival instincts to create a life of true meaning and validation and give back as well. So to me, that's an essential part of this. So therefore, we do have a drive to create significance. We do. We're born creators. We may not know how to do that. Therefore, that's a learned skill. And I had the luck of that, but we have the raw capacity within all of us. But our fear may get in the way of us even engaging that. We talk ourselves out of it like prematurely. Therefore, we don't believe that it's there. That's complete mythology for sure. Mythology. So Total not mythology. lies. Mythology. Total mythology. Because it comes natural to the human fear-based survival instinct. It only comes natural that I'll probably fail more than I'll win. So I believe in my ability to fail more than I believe in my ability to succeed. It's a survival instinct. And so I was helping an athlete win a gold medal. 
for this very reason, because he was starting to mentally unravel two and a half weeks before the Olympic finals. So their federation called me in because he was favored to win the gold medal as an event. And I said, you're coming too much from your survival instinct. You believe that you need to be perfect to win a gold medal. That sounds good to our human nature, but that's not true. We know that at a certain point, the less harder you try, the more access you have to present real-time reality. And your performance is faster than you can think. It's a byproduct of your preparation. You just need to learn to get yourself out of the way. And so I, I showed him that if you're trying to be perfect, you're trying to make a, a contingency for every detail, but your mind is always going to make up a detail that you can't find. And you're going to invest 100% of your confidence in your ability to fail because you can't find the missing part. And I see this all the time in people. So that's complete mythology. And there's a lot of mythology that we hear from the experts about what it takes to get to the top and stay there. And part of my mission here on this planet is to demystify the process through what history tells us to be true, that may be contrarian to our experience and what the experts are saying, that may be appealing to our human nature because it offers a shortcut. But if we understand the process as it really exists, then all of a sudden we get that one grain of hope that keeps us in the game. And we start to build on that. And presto, we go from believing we can do it to knowing we can do it. And at that point, it's like game over. Ooh. So I was going to go back in the toy box, but you gave me something else to play with this one now. So you said we go from believing to knowing. Correct. There's a difference? Huge. Yeah, because you can believe it, but there may be some level of doubt. Yeah, I believe I can do this. I believe it. But if at that point when we recognize, because it's an essential point, we go from disbelief and talking ourselves out of it. And if you're a really good coach, then you can take somebody from the I don't think I can do this to show them that it is possible. And if they see that, oh, it is possible because you have showed me the path forward and I can see myself doing that, that's great. Then we start to believe that we can do it. We haven't executed the steps yet. So it's a little bit of a uncertainty. So there's a little bit of a, a caution, blinking yellow light there. But then once we begin the journey and if we have the right spaced steps and they're the right content and targets, then we start to build a body of evidence that we can accomplish it. And then at a certain point, we see, well, okay, if I string enough of these together, I'm going to get to where I want to go because I've already proven myself I can do it. I just need to make sure it's not too big a leaps and I don't try to do too much too quickly. And at that point, oh, chest goes out and you believe you can do it. So for example, when I was working with Dave Asprey, when Dave was building Bulletproof, there was a point in time, I was a, a very close advisor to him as a human leader and as CEO. And I said, look, Dave, we both know that Bulletproof is going to be big. We both, we know that we have evidence of that, but we just need one more piece to know it's going to happen. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, we need more inventory. We need more people at the higher executive level to handle certain things. And I said, what's that going to take? He said, oh, it's maybe a couple of million bucks to do that. And I said, well, you're the guy in Silicon Valley. You can go out and raise that. Why don't you do that? So when he went out and raised it and we saw that, okay, great. Now we can get the inventory of the people. We knew we could do it. Dave did the most of the lifting. I was the guy that sort of helped him you know, with that. But then presto, at that point, you've ever had the point? You've, you obviously had that where you wake up one day and knowing it's like, what? Game over. Why? I don't know. Something happened yesterday, but now I know I can do it. And therefore it's not done yet, but it, it, it essentially is done because you see the path forward. So that's what I mean by that. The outcome is imminent. It, well, that's good. Now you gave me goosebumps.
It's exactly right. The outcome is imminent. We're just waiting for time to catch up. See the future. That's exactly right. So it's a body of evidence that allows that to happen. It's not wishful thinking. It's not gratitude journals. It's not affirmations. And all those things are essential. I get that. But that they're different than a body of evidence that you can look at that is absolutely concrete and objective. There is no argument. And at a certain point, the brain looks at it and the brain says, okay, if we got here through this, it's just an extension of this moving into the future. Therefore, it's already done. And when we see that, then that's when game over. And that's why we need that level of counsel or to be around that because our human nature doesn't want to think like that. It's always about, look, you got to make sure you choose the right thing next. Otherwise, you're going to fail. So you get so tight and so ambivalent that you either try to do everything or you do nothing. So we always have this cross, the eternal battle that we all fight day in and day out is we have human nature, survive, trying to do everything safe and cover all the bases. We have our creativity, our winner side here that wants to make a difference, that believes in itself. And both of these are at war with each other 24 hours a day for control over our decision-making. And that's the low-grade anxiety that we all feel. If we're really honest about it, there are very few moments where we're at explicit uh, sublime peace. There's usually this sort of tug of war back and forth, should I or shouldn't I? Yes, I do. I'm confident. No, I'm not confident that we all live with. And that's that battle that I described between our two mentalities that you can't shut off. It's there every second of our lives. Now you speak with such certainty. Is it the 50 plus years of experience doing this? (laughs) Yeah. I think at a certain point, it takes about 50 years to have one lap through life where you've seen it all. You don't know that yet, but that's when you start to see these repeat patterns show up. And then over time, as you get a greater insight into the patterns, you have now a a premonition side where if you see this, you know exactly where it's leading because you've seen the pattern. So I'm 20 years past 50. So I've had a chance to see a lot of things for multiple times. And there are certain things that I just know to be true because there is a body of evidence that history shows us to be true. And, And I trust what history shows us to be true because we're not trying to make everything fit what we want to happen, but we're looking at what it is and we're taking what it is based on the evidence and we're working with that and well-paced. Two things here that are absolutely key is that we have the right items assembled where there's that uh, synergy, right? We need the synergy of the parts to be there, the minimum parts, the better, and then we have to do things in the right sequence. And the right sequence is usually the challenge because everybody's got this giant gunny sack of hacks that they drag around with them. And somehow they feel that if they do all the hacks, that the hacks are going to get us to where we want to go magically, throw all the hacks at the wall, something's going to stick. But that's not how it works. We need only the key elements that in synergy, when done in the right order, create harmony that enables exponential. That's the secret to exponential. Exponential is not more or harder to our human nature, our survival instincts. We think more is better. It sounds right, doesn't it? But it's not. It just creates a greater level of complexity where we get more confused and then our doubt escalates. So it's the fewest number of elements in the system that have synergy to harmonize because when they harmonize, then it becomes a super system of output that enables exponential to become the norm, actually. Not every day is going to be perfect exponential, but if we know what it takes in terms of the parts, 
and we know it's a sequence is the secret here because everybody's got the duffel bag. I got a fact. Can't you just give me a hack, Jerome? I just need another hack. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have the hacks right there, but you just don't know the order to put them in. So anyhow, that's a, a important point with this. You keep pulling more toys out. Look, okay. So <laughs> yeah, here, here's the thing, right? Everybody wants the shortcut, but the shortcut Correct. doesn't actually work because you don't actually go through the sequence. That's right. And, and see, so I could promise you, I could say, hey, Jerome, look, I got the secret code here on how to get from A to B in half the time. And you'll say, okay, I'll give you anything for that. Okay. How about $50,000? Yeah, for sure. It's a shortcut. I'll do it. Well, so the promise of the shortcut, human nature likes because human nature is a little bit sloppy and lazy and it wants that assurance. So if some expert comes along and offers the assurance, usually I, I'm very cautious about that because there is no shortcut, quite honestly. We have to be able to look at, okay, show me the parts. Okay, we have these parts here. I think you have too many. I think you need half the parts and half the parts means four times less energy and difficulty and confusion for you. And the action steps are in this order. You know, that's what we need to do. So the voice of experience to help with that, that's the secret to exponential and energy conservation because the biggest risk that everybody here is blowing yourself up by doing too hard, too long, too often, too much frustration, not enough guidance, trying to cover all the bases, sleeping less to make sure that you don't get left behind. All of these things that we see that to drive human nature, that's not the champion's nature. That's the human mindset being rigid it has a rigid set of beliefs that it believes to be true because it sounds good to our human nature, but historically it probably doesn't deliver and we don't have a body of evidence to confirm it, but it sure does feel right. So I just think that again, fewest number of things that can synergize and then we put them in the right order. Boom. Magic recipe. Now, I think you've got some contrarian views about diet. I think there was somebody who had a pretty rigid diet and you gave them some guidance to go do something that was totally out of the ordinary. You remember that? <laughs> hey man, you must've been sniffing around, man. You've done your homework. Yeah. That's not unusual for me. So a uh, couple of points here about this. So I was working with a very precocious athlete and I just want to say here that all my work right now is done in the business world, uh, entrepreneurial world for those people that want to play big guilt free without blowing themselves up. That's what I'm really good at. But I did spend a lot of time and cut my teeth uh, in the athletic world because I was an Olympian myself. So there was a natural thing there. So I was working with this athlete. I was getting paid a bunch of money for to craft him into being the champion that he was. And before one competition, he was like sucking on a towel like this. He was really ties paralyzed. And I said, look, you're investing too much in things that don't matter. And you should be doing the things for yourself that you're empowering a lucky rabbit's foot to do, or your underpants that have red hearts on them. You think that's going to, that's your good luck charm. We need to forget all that stuff because you're getting away from yourself. I said that you think you need your vitamins to win. Yeah, I, I do. I, I really do. I said, for the next month, you're not going to take any vitamins. What are you talking about? Are you, are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm really serious because you're relying too much on your vitamins. It's you, the person that does the execution. It's not your vitamins, but you've gotten away from that. You think you need a perfect training program. You need the perfect everything to be capable of winning. It's not. It's about you showing up and doing it has to go right when it has to go right. That's what this all boils down to. So no more vitamins for a month. Oh my God, you're kidding me. No. As a matter of fact, I want you to go to Baskin Robbins and get you know one of those cups. And I want you to get three scoops of ice cream. And his eyes are getting like this big. And I want you to get, oh, by the way, get a piece of 
pi, your chosen pi on top of that. And I'm going to have my phone with me all the time. And then once you're done with that, I want you to call me up. Will you do that? It is kind of going, okay. And so ring, ring, ring. So I pick it up later. Hey, how's it going? This guy was laughing his head off on the other side of it. And I said, what'd you learn here? He said, well, it didn't kill me. I said, well, yeah, well, that's what we've been waiting for. You realize it's up to you, right? It didn't kill you. And so we go back to an example with Lance. So we were at a training camp in Austin and he came into my room and he said, you got anything to eat? Cause I'm really starved after that 150 mile training ride. I said, nope, don't have anything. So he was looking on the hotel. There's a table, you know, it has that little basket with Pringles and Snickers bars and stuff. And I could see him looking at it. And I, I saw what he was thinking. What do you think he was thinking? Well, the Snickers, but I probably should get something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe it would be perfect if I got an apple, but I'm starved. And should I eat the Snickers bar? So what do you think he did? I think he ate the Snickers bar. Yeah, he did. Right. Exactly right. Because he knew the Snickers bar wasn't going to make the difference. It was up to him to show up and get the job done. So again, there's a lot of mythology that we can count on as being there because of our survival instincts and our fear of not being good enough or perfect enough or violating certain truths that we believe to be true when they're not. And part of my job with my clients and the people that I work with is to demystify the things that we think that we need that we really don't. Because we don't need a lot, but it really begins with belief in self that's real because we've incorporated how do we learn that in the coaching process because if we don't ultimately learn how to trust ourselves in not a mind over matter way but in a real way it's impossible for our greatest talents to manifest themselves so the battle against human nature and the natural life as it comes out of the box that's easy just follow your impulses. That's just me. Oh, I see. So the irrational you that's explosive to everything, that's just who you are. Well, I don't think so. That's human nature expressed without any type of restraint and certainly not displaying what the highest level of us can manifest unless we transcend that. So again, until we understand that we have these two natures that are at war with each other, and we learn to identify who the not us is that you can't shut off because it's there 24 hours a day and know how we can respond. And we have a method to do that, to then acquaint ourselves with our real capacity, the champion us that wants to make a difference, then it's really hard to believe in self. And so I feel that's a really important side of this conversation. It's hard to believe in self. Yes. As a matter of fact, we have more confidence in our ability to fail than in our ability to win. How do you know that, Jeff? When I was in graduate school, I show up at the classroom to take an examination and everybody in the hall was quizzing each other. They were looking at their notes. The electricity in the hall was palpable. And I knew as an Olympian, the closer that you get to performing, the less you do. You let your mind and body natural energy be fresh. You let that build itself. So when you show up, you can retrieve what it is that you learned and come from your best level of preparation. But these people were doing exactly the opposite. What they were doing, they believed that they needed to cram 
the last bit of information that they needed, the 5% they didn't know, they thought they needed that to pass the test. So what they did, they went into the classroom to take the test, putting all their confidence in the 5% they didn't know. And that got in the way of retrieving what they did know. So the last five minutes of the test, everybody was changing all the right answers to wrong answers. And then when the test is over, everybody went out in the hall. Who was that person that just took the test? That was not the real me. That is true. It wasn't the real you, but it was the reflex survival you that took over it a situation where you failed to show up and come from your champion's self. And you reverted back to the default us that's always there that unless we apply the champion us is going to call the shots in our decision-making completely hundred percent predictable. The one thing that I've enjoyed most about my engagements with you is the way that you use the word predictable, right? Because it is basically proven through experimentation mm -hmm. that if you do this, then this will happen. Correct. Right? That's exactly right. And that allows you to have trust. And this has That's been correct. the whole game for me over the past two years of, I, I used to trust people because I liked them. Like mm -hmm. they were nice or they had mm -hmm. a good smile or whatever it was. And then they go do something and like, why did I trust them? That was idiotic because <laughs> I was expecting them to be me, right. but I couldn't predict what they were going to do because I didn't actually know them. I didn't have the inputs and outputs and the body of knowledge, as you call it, to actually have an understanding of what's going to happen once the thing happened. But you talk about predictability hmm. and you believe that the success winning is a predictable outcome. I do. And I can spend two minutes with the person. I can just tell how they're talking, whether they're coming from their, their default beliefs, they're coming from the human nature hardwiring that's all about survival. They're living a natural life. There are impulses that we see that come from that that can't deliver on their promise or whether or not and to what extent they're coming from their champion's mind that's different than a human mindset the champion's mind is a living breathing organism that can receive interpret edit store and transmit information based on evidence that allows us the conscious uh, observer and executor to look at and see what's true. And a lot of times that's contrarian to what our human mindset believes to be true. So we do have a choice. You can either lead a, a human natural life or you can leave, or you can lead a superhuman supernatural life. You gotta kind of decide which it is because that will determine where you place your effort in terms of how you execute each moment, one moment after another. And it is a learned skill in my opinion, because what we learn is that if you want anything bad enough, you're going to get it. That's not exactly true. If you don't have the skills and the learning and the innate talent and the state of readiness to do it, well, then it's not going to happen. Will isn't going to overcome, you know, will and talent are something, but they're not enough. And they can't surmount the lack of skills and preparation that we need to execute when we need to execute it. Yeah, it, it is a learned skill for sure. As a matter of fact, I created a whole program based upon goal achievements called the goal achievement roadmap. And again, if you go to beforeyouwin.com, you'll see a descriptor of that and get a chance to look at, at the model, not in its entirety, because it takes several 10 or 12, 15 hours to go through all the nuances of it, but you'll get a sense of what that is. And you know, people think that if you look at all the programs out there, they're about goal setting. Goal setting doesn't guarantee goal achievement. They're two different things, but yet somehow we think that if we have the right goal and it's big enough, of course, that everything's going to somehow magically backfill. 
and it, it doesn't. So I think it, what is important here is that you learn the skill which of goal achievement, which I believe is life's fundamental skill, for sure, life's fundamental skill, because if we can't do that, then you can't manifest talent. It's not possible. There has to be a method that takes idea into three-dimensional tangibility. So I created a whole program based on that. You can check that out, com. just an introduction to it. But again, it's based on what the observations have been over the last almost 45 years of my advisory on what I have seen in helping some of the prolific achievers of our time be able to create their legacies and, and their lives of expansive achievement that, again, was, is deliberate. It was intentional. It's supposed to happen. It was not an accident. It wasn't an accident. Goals don't happen by accident. No. It's deliberate and it's purposeful. I had an athlete once in the athletic days. I got a call at 1.30 a.m. on Saturday night. I knew that if I got those calls, it means that one of the people I was working with had a massive success. So he called me up and said, man, I won, I won, I won. Can you believe it? I said, well, it's supposed to happen. But he said, I, I can't believe it. I started, I said to myself, man, I don't know. This person may not get it that this was supposed to happen. If he doesn't get that, I don't know about his future, man. Because if he thinks that all of this stuff is an accident, he's going to be like fearful and apprehensive and you can't grow if that's your baseline way of engaging moment by moment. And sure enough, I found that he couldn't embrace the idea that this was supposed to happen. He couldn't believe the evidence and therefore his career didn't get to where it could have gone. He had the ability to do it, but the belief going to knowing just wasn't there. So again, a really important part in this conversation. So there's some people out there listening, wait, if everything's supposed to happen, then what do I get grateful for? What am I really looking for if everything's just a matter of fact? And I know you live in a, in a place of gratitude. So how do you reconcile the two for those who may be having challenges putting these two pieces? They're two separate things entirely. You can be grateful for a beautiful day or an opportunity at the day or good fortune, a great family and friends. I get that. But that's separate from your being able to manifest your talents and gifts. And to me, the definition of a champion is a manifestor of gifts. And this is really important because human nature, of course, we're comparing ourselves against everybody else and everybody else's life looks perfect and ours isn't. And what's wrong with me? Why I'm not like them. We don't really know what their life experience is, number one. And number two, everybody on this planet, and look, there's 7 billion people on this planet right now. And there's 350 billion people that have been on this planet since the first footprint got laid down whenever that was and whoever that was. And there's still only one of us in all of creation. There's no uh, other us. There's just one of us that uniquely qualifies us to do some extraordinary things. And another side to this is that how we view our contribution. So let's say the objective is to get the teeter-totter to tip over, right? And so uh, Jerome brings the teeter-totter, this big long thing in the fulcrum, sets it up, right? And then Jeff brings the last grain of sand that you put on the sand pile that allows it to tip over. Who brought the most essential part to this? Who made the most difference? We both did. I brought the grain of sand, you brought the teeter-totter. And so the kind of take-home here, can we just not judge ourselves for the value of what we believe to be true and the contribution? Can we just not do that? Because when I was nine years old working in a bike shop, I was the world's worst mechanic. I don't know why the guy didn't fire me. 
a guy came in wearing a t-shirt that said USA Olympic team. And I said, I wanted that t-shirt when I saw it. I wanted that more than anything. I went home and I got my box of crayons and I got a thick piece of paper and I drew the t-shirt and I drew my plan, how I was going to do it. USA Olympic team still got the, still got the piece of paper. And I said, I'm going to be brave, no excuses. And I'm going to work hard. That was my plan. And that was when I was like, I want to be an Olympian when I was seven. I, he didn't even know he was wearing the t-shirt, but yet that was the very thing that inspired me to become an Olympian and the people that I've inspired because of becoming an Olympian, it all began with that t-shirt, but he doesn't even remember doing it. So can we just not decide our level of contribution? Can we just look at our, our talents and develop our talents and not try to be the second version of someone else? Can we just be us and show up and develop our skills and talent and come from that place? As I told my adopted daughter, it's you're here on this earth to manifest your contribution, whatever that is. Because when you do it, you honor the gift of the gift. You honor the people that helped you. You show other people it's possible. And so I, I just feel the reconciliation is not between those two things. Gratitude is one thing, personal achievement and showing up for duty to what I believe is, if I dare say it, like a moral imperative. I think that we're honor bound to develop our talents and showcase those because that's why we're here on this planet. And our distinction and contribution should never be measured by our perception of what the magazines tell us or what our human nature believes to be true. And I feel that when people do that, it shifts the game. It gives you a different level of purpose rather than get up despondent because of lack and what we haven't been able to achieve. We are forward looking about what we know to be uniquely us that we can provide to really uh, execute as an honor ritual for the opportunity through this life. That's how I see it. So I, I want to make sure I got this right. You just said that basically manifesting our gifts is a moral obligation. Yeah, I do. I do believe that. I do, because if you're going to be a complete human being, have to play it out. There's a certain momentum that we're naturally born with. It's just there that we didn't ask for. And what I do know is that people that are in active pursuit of, of honoring that, they're forward-looking, they're inventive, they are not victims, they are contributors. And those people that are still waiting for their dream to be dropped into their lap are not happy. They're not fun to be around. And so I do believe that, look, at the end of the day, there's going to be a reconciliation. What do we do with our life? I see this all the time, you know, and I feel that, again, what keeps us stuck is our comparison against what we believe to be, will be perceived of as value. We've already decided what that is. And that's a classic human nature thing. Our human nature decides the value of what we're doing based upon our belief that we're not good enough. And I just feel that if we, again, look for our gifts and we claim them and we declare them and it's enough because it's uniquely us and we do, that's great. It, just a sidelight here. I was interviewing someone as uh, a potential coaching client and she sold her uh, company for 500 million. That's a lot of money. And she is still in the game and she wants to create a billion dollar company. And I ask her, why do you want to do this? She said, I want to do this to prove to people that it was not a fluke 
the previous company that I did. And I want to prove it to my parents that though I wasn't the smartest in the family, I could create something of value. This woman is 49 years old. She's not married. She has no kids. She lives in a palatial mansion in the heart of LA. She owns an acre in the heart of LA, the most desirable zip code on the planet, an acre. Just imagine that. And yet every second of her day is trying to prove her merit to others. What's up, tribe? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know that we put together a free 15-point checklist for exiting the matrix. Jump on over to dreamshouldbereal.com in order to pick your free copy up. Let's get back to the show. How does somebody get, I just don't see most people being able to get to that level when they're living that way because they usually fizzle out. It's the story that we tell ourselves, honestly, for a variety of different reasons, whatever that is. And the story was not about her wealth. The story was about the fact that she could not accept her gifts and that be enough. There was always comparison against everything else that was consuming her. There was an unanswerable question because it's never going to be enough. No matter what it is, it's still never enough because if it is a billion dollar company that doesn't provide her with what she needs to experience to reconcile herself and live a life of, of peace and tranquility. So it wasn't about the money side of it. It was about being possessed with not claiming what was rightly hers and her purpose on this planet. As far as I see it, because if it's too much time and too much effort, Another bit of mythology, and I said earlier, the biggest risk is us blowing ourselves up in pursuit of trying to validate ourselves or make a difference. And I don't think that's a good evidence that we're honoring our best uh, assets in, in our gifts. Life should become just a little bit easier. Somehow we think human nature that it's got to be hard to be good. And I don't know if that's really true or not. I think good guidance, you have to expect in the process that there will be moments of difficulty. You can know where those are. At least I, I know where those are for my clients. And I can tell them, look, you're moving towards a period of difficulty. Just know that it's supposed to be here because this is where you're going to refine certain things that you need to learn that you don't know that you need to learn yet. But the difficulty will show us what it is that we need to do next. So just when you get there, don't talk yourself out of it and think something's wrong with you and you're not capable of getting there because if you were only perfect and you knew what you were doing, you wouldn't have this. So that's another classic human mindset myth that we tell ourselves that absolutely is not true. But if we know that in advance, then we don't succumb to the probability of that either creating an untimely stall or, or worse yet talking us out of the game. Okay. <sighs> I'm going to go back to the angels, right? So we, we left the angels and we we're going to come back. And so angel number three gave you this artistic renaissance, man, glass blowing, classical music, et cetera. Angel two, what did angel two teach? That, that was angel two. Angel three was the humanity from uh, the person that was in the concentration camp. Perfect. All right. So I, I, exactly where I want to be. Okay. So angel two, glass blowing renaissance, man, that seems so 
opposite. I know <laughs> of Coach One, right? Who's on the bike hammering because people who haven't rode competitively have no idea how difficult that is. So such a dichotomy in the formation of who you became to then go to meet somebody who's okay. Now you've achieved at this high level, you've been world-class, make sure you understand that people are people. I think just brings the whole pie together. So when we're talking about angel number two, the Renaissance man, what was interesting about that for you? Because it seems like you just wanted, would have wanted to get out on a bike and go or just like, competition, athletics, me versus me, even though there's other people around versus me versus creating this thing that's in my mind and showing it to the world for them to receive it and form their own opinions about my art. Yeah, I felt about it a a bit differently. I I felt that I, I knew that the risk of limiting your capacity as an athlete is too hard, too much, too long. There has to be balance in there because the performance gains happen during the recovery period where you're not on the bike. And yet human nature wants to make you think that if you train more than everybody else, then you're going to win. Doesn't that kind of make sense? Yeah, it makes sense from the human nature side, but in terms of real biology and results, it doesn't make any sense at all because you have to perform fresh. And to perform fresh means that those people that train too much, you have to be comfortable watching them do more than you do and be okay with that and not succumb to the myth that more is better because it, it does make sense, but only to human nature, not to the champion's mind. So that was okay. And, and I realized also that I'll tell you a story, quite honestly, last night, one of the athletes that I work with competed in the Olympics, like last night, and he superseded what was expected of him. And one of the things that helped us find that extra percentage in him as a cyclist, I said, look, you can't do any more training now to get better. I said that you you run the risk of getting injured or sick. We can't do that. So you told me that between the ages of zero and 10, you played the violin and you haven't played it for the last 14 years. Said, yeah, that's right. I said, I suggest you get your violin out and you practice 15 minutes a day on your violin and you don't worry about the screeching and the rustiness of it. Your body remembers us. But the idea of this is to reacquaint you with something that was part of your development and it involves rhythm and pacing and not trying to do too much too quick, but to find the right harmony. I believe that this is exactly the same equivalent that you're going to need to show up with that level of engagement to put in your best athletic performance. He said, that's crazy. What does violin have to do with bike fitness? I said, it's not about bike fitness. It's about you being able to show up. And you being able to bring the presence of mind and the capacity to let your training on the bike manifest itself. So he said, okay, I'll try it. So he actually did it. And it actually proved to be the difference in his performance. So again, anytime we build another facet of ourself, knowing that there are many facets to us, it builds a bigger us. But again, mythology, the human mindset, which we can't look at as being reliable because it's not is going to tell us, well, look, Jerome, if you only spent more time doing what you're doing, just imagine how much better you'd be. That's your competitive advantage. And Uncle Jeff says, I don't think that's true because you only have so much energy in a day in that compartment to service your professional obligation. 
And once that energy compartment is used up, spending more time at it leads to increased frustration and a higher risk of an amateurish mental error that could cost you a day or a week or a month or maybe years of preparation. So you need to know when to back away and then to move into another compartment of your brain in you and develop that will make a better, more well-rounded you that will actually enhance your business, but it doesn't seem like it's business related. When we realize that we have different compartments and we don't try to stay too long into one, but we dance around a bit, we become more productive and we become more effective at what we do. More effective by doing less. There's a bunch of gurus who say, oh yeah, just work forever. There's folks who go and say, yeah, I've been grinding for 12 or 16 hours in a day. What do you say to them? I actually work 12 or 16 hours a day, but this is how I did it. It's like when I was in clinical practice, I would work, I would uh, see patients six hours a day straight. I wouldn't take a break. And then I would leave because I exhausted that compartment, correct? I used up all the energy for that side of my uh, profession. And I knew to do more time, I would be ineffectual and not be the clinician that they deserved. So then I'd go home, do a workout, and then I'd go to my art glass studio and I'd work on my glass for three or four hours. And I was fresh because I hadn't tapped into that compartment today. So I was fresh there. I picked up absolutely fresh as if it were the first thing in the morning. And then once I got done with that, maybe after three hours, I start to soften up that compartment's used up. Great. Then I'll move into the next compartment, which would be like the coaching. So then I do maybe three hours of coaching. And that was another compartment that was fresh that had energy waiting for me. So I, I took the six hours, I added to it three and three, which is another six. So that became like a 12 hour day, but it wasn't 12 hours of one thing. 12 hours of one thing means at least six hours, the last six hours, you're not going to be working efficiently. You're not going to be remembering things. You're not going to be crisp. And we're told to push because that's what the experts say. I say, no, you back away because when you're fresh, and there's a couple of other things I need to add to this, but when you walk away at the first sign of fatigue and there's a natural pause point and you change to another compartment, then you're starting fresh. And so that's how you can have a 12 hour day. That seems like six because you, and you've also allowed the compartments to repair and uh, restore themselves between the different days. That's hard to accept. I get it. Uh, our human nature accepts certain things to be true where there's no evidence really where the champions playground is where they know what to be true based upon the evidence that can then be described and can be repeated. Just an important thing to be mindful of. Extremely important. So you mentioned the champion's playground, yes. but what's the champion's blueprint? The champion's blueprint, at least in my vocabulary, it's an umbrella. And every champion has a blueprint, meaning that before you build the house, you look at the blueprint and you make sure that everything is there to execute it correctly the first time. And champions have a blueprint. It's an umbrella under which certain things reside. So let me explain. So in my champion's blueprint, first off, I said earlier that life's fundamental skill is goal achievement. And it is a skill that we learn. And so I've created a model, the goal achievement roadmap that sits underneath that. It shows me how to prepare 
to perform, to achieve my goals. It shows me where I am in the process. It shows me what to do. It allows me to peek around the corner and know what's coming. So I'm not blindsided and taken out of the game. There are certain points where uh, I know it will be hard. That's okay. It's supposed to be. I'm not going to talk myself out of it. So there's that part of it. Now, under the umbrella, the blueprint, there's also what I call the champion's perfect day schedule. Because to me, life's fundamental unit is the day. And if we cannot control a day, we can't control our life. And if we can't control our life, then you can't manifest. But also then people don't trust you. If you're going to be a leader and you can't manage your day, they're not going to believe you. They will maybe show up and support you, but they're not going to go all in and give you everything that they've got unconditionally because they're not sure that you can give them what they need from you for you to get all of them. And so they'll have one foot in, one foot out based upon that trust. And when we also talk about the champion's perfect day, like how do we exactly prepare for the day? What do we do during the work portion of the day? And then how do we recover so we can show up day after day and be a high producer and actually get stuff done? How exactly do we do that? There has to be a model, which I've created. It's called the champion's perfect day. And so that sits under there as well. What else do we need under the uh, umbrella? We need health management practices fitness, hygiene, recreation, relationship, et cetera. So that is another part that needs to be mixed into the schedule. And so there are a variety of different things that we need to have that are evidence-based, that taken as a totality, allow us to build the capacity to perform, but over the long term, so that we can live the richest life possible passionate, purposeful, productive, and also prosperous. And without those tools, if we just try to make it up as we go, that's a recipe for frustration, impulsiveness, and mediocrity that doesn't have to happen. So that's the champion's blueprint. Outstanding. Okay. Oh man, there's so many places I want to go. So when you made the pivot from clinical practice to coaching full-time, what was the worst fear in that process? The worst fear was not doing it, quite honestly. Because a friend of mine, I've done this several times. And when I was in clinical practice, I've had several incarnations of that, but I informed my patients that I was going to be making a change to give myself more space and time to explore the artistic side of me, the sculpture side of me, and that I would be moving out of the area and setting up shop in a different location where I would be practicing plus doing my art. And one of my friends said, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that. It's got to be scary. I said, what I find really scary and terrifying is not doing it because I know how my truth speaks to me. I know how I was called to the Olympics. I did faithfully. I always have been rewarded well without any expectation or demand or bartering for that when I've showed up from that. So for me, what I feel I fear most, I don't fear it most because I'm not going to do it, but it would be not to get a calling to show up and do something and not show up and do it because I, I know exactly how that speaks to me. I know exactly how that informs me. And I know that 
when I engage that faithfully without any apprehension, because I don't have any, when I see that, then it always is a very easy path to an extraordinary next chapter, just the way it is. And so we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about your daughter a little bit and the chapter of your life that opened up. So I think I heard you at one point say that that was your single greatest accomplishment in life. No question. So this is how it worked out. The plumbing was working, but my wife and I had you know several miscarriages. And for whatever reason, we're not able to have our own child. And we were called to adopt and explore it, which we did. And when I was 58, at the height of my career, literally the height of my career, so when I was working with you too, I did all seven of Lance's tours with them. That's what my normal was. That's what I'm used to. That's what I grew up with. We were called to adopt. We explored it. And we eventually ended up adopting a 10-year-old from Columbia, rural Columbia. And when we went there for six weeks, we took legal possession of her to do a trial run for six weeks. And then everybody votes whether we're going to do it or not, including the girl. And when we brought her back to the United States, I, I said to my daughter, I said, with regard to our daughter here, her name is Ken, K-I-N. I said, she doesn't speak any English and we don't speak any Spanish. We have no language. I said, all we have is like at least three words in sign language, like quiet, sleep, and hungry. That's where we're starting this. There is no language. And she has really no school. Rural Columbia, why do you go to school? It doesn't do any good. There's no reason for that. And being kidnapped by the authorities and put into the foster care system for the last five years, there's no school. In the U.S., by the age of three months, you should be declaring what your major is in college and where you're going to apply to graduate school. I, I said, you know, there's nothing there. And she's got severe PTSD and ADHD from getting beat up every day and, and physically abused in the worst sense of the word since the age of four. She's got a parasitic ridden body. She has every risk factor known to humanity is a 20 on a scale of five. I said, this is a formidable foe. I said, look, we have to deliver on our promise to her. Me, Jerome is an Olympic sort of guy. I'm not a bronze medalist. It's either gold or don't show up. So we needed to play a gold medal game. That's just the way it is. And so I said, starting today, I have to reduce my professional availability by 90%. And along with that goes our income. It's just the way it is. Because to do anything other than that, we can't be the father that she deserves to have and that we promised her to be her parents. And that's where we started. And we had, it seemed like a staff of a thousand people, doctors, psychologists, tutors, soccer coaches, whatever we needed to just keep her in the game, not to do the homework for her, but just to keep her in the game with that level of depravity. And we knew that she had a bright spirit. I, I somehow sensed that despite the abuse, her soul was not tampered with because a lot of people are mangled when they're exposed to that. But I, I never felt that with her when we were in Columbia, when we first met her, I felt that there was something really important. Then I got the calling like it did to do the Olympics with her. So we did it. I don't ask questions like that, but I can honestly say that the Olympics was easy compared to raising her. My, my wife cried every day for nine years and 10 months. I, I'm literally 10 years of, of my wife crying every day. It was so difficult, but we never gave up. We stayed vigilant to doing those things that had to go right to inch her along, to give her a chance to reconcile a past that nobody should be exposed to because I, I felt 
with our daughter that our intent wasn't just to save a life, but it was to manifest the potential. So there's a different sort of scorecard attached to this. It was brutal. Just, it was freaking brutal. And you know, so here's what I learned from this. And I wouldn't change this for anything. I'll also say that, I'll tell you later what I was going to say, but no, I'll tell you right now. But I'm proud to say that a couple of months ago, she graduated from college, which was its own miracle because nobody in her family ever graduated from elementary school. And so that was a really an important victory for her in her independence and her developing a belief in herself, but also helping uh, excise from her memory those experiences that sometimes bind a person forever to the trespass and the violations that some people are exposed to. And so what I learned is this, is that number one, you can love anybody. You don't need a special reason. It's a choice. You just decide you're going to do it. And you don't barter for it. It's not, look, God, if you give me this, I'll do it. That's not it. You don't do that. You don't do that sort of thing. You just decide that you are going to show up faithfully, unconditionally, and you're going to do what has to go right when it has to go right to service that obligation without any expectation of any reciprocity. It's just not the way that it's done. The second thing I learned from this is that there has to be an explicit trust and process, meaning that we were at our limit where just to get through a day was its own miracle because it was so difficult. The behavioral problems, the financial concerns, the enormity of the problem and the circumstances and then the crying and the other personal side of this stuff, I was still practicing with a handful of elite clients at that time, but I, was, I went virtually black professionally. I just disappeared off the face of the earth just because I didn't want to be the guy that was saying no to people when they requested my services. But the explicit process that you do whatever has to go right in the moment without any consideration of holding on to something that you may need later at the expense of what has to go right in the present moment. You just, you go all in with everything. That's just the way it is. And whatever that turns out as being is exactly what that is. And, and what I learned from that is, is that because of that, I feel like right now I could just sleep on a cot in the corner of a room. As long as I have a bicycle and my computer, I, I'm in good shape. I don't need anything more than that. I, I feel like there was a certain level of invincibility that was conveyed through that, that nothing could really hurt me that I haven't already had to address and deal with. And I've been able to determine what's important and what's not and live in a way that as long as I have my brain and the flexibility to pursue and support other people, I'm in great shape. I don't need all the other stuff that we believe that we need to have to live a life of value and quality. I just don't feel like that. The other thing that I learned from this is that the most important thing that you can do every day is decide how you're going to show up. That's the most important thing ever is decide how you're going to show up for people. And the reason why I say that is had people shown up differently for my daughter, she wouldn't have the scarring of the brutality that she didn't ask for that was imposed upon her by people that had no regard for her as a human or the impact on their actions on her future. And I feel, why is that any different for us? We have to decide, are we going to show up and give the best of what we got for everybody without any expectation, anything in return? I think the answer is yes, because we don't show up to get what we think that we deserve in exchange for that. That's not part of the deal. I think it helps us be unconditional. It allows us to know that we've done our part, regardless of whatever the outcome is in showing up and in, in being of that. It's good for us because it helps us get beyond those things that we think that we need that we really don't. It's the most important question you can ask every day before you start to engage people, places, 
in things. People deserve the best because when you show up from that place, number one, you're honoring you, the real you. If we show up making everybody else pay for the life that we'd like to have that we don't, well, that's coming from human mindset. That comes from human nature. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be natural. I want to be supernatural. There has to be a standard and a path towards that. And I think deciding to show up with everything that you got on behalf of everybody is part of that. Another thing that I saw in this is that there's always enough energy to do anything on behalf of other people. Where the energy gets difficult is where everything is in our own self-interest and we get frustrated because it's not happening fast enough for us. Is that you know the world surrounds us and should bend to us, the great king or queen. Forget that's ridiculous. And the last thing that I learned for sure is that you never withhold the possibility of a miracle. You never do that. You always hold space for a miracle. And I found that with those things that I just shared with you, and there are others, that's what I really learned from this experience. And to say that the most important thing that I've ever done, at the end of the day, if we can just live through those four or five things that I said, then we can live with pride of ownership and know that we've shown up as the person that we need to be, that people deserve us to have in this dimension that we get one pass through as, as far as I know. Always hold space for the miracle or Always. a miracle. Yes. Always. Is there believing and knowing in that space or is it just knowing that? It doesn't matter because you're not doing it because you can't command that into existence. It just has to be a a sheer place that you hold eternal that a miracle will happen. And there has to be an implicit trust and process. We can't decide what it is too quickly. Otherwise, we're going to talk ourselves out of some really good stuff because in difficulty, the next step may be the thing that takes us and catapults us to an expansive future. You don't know. That's why you stay in the game and you do what has to go. Whatever has to go, you do it. You don't try to hold on to something for later. There, I remember there's a point in time where I saw that we needed to do something for a daughter. It was 2500 bucks to do it, to execute it when it had to get done. And so I just paid the 2500 bucks to do it, which was exorbitant in a certain sense. But in another sense, it wasn't because if that's the thing that creates exponential and you show up of service and your truth speaks to you, then it's easy to do it because you're not being held hostage by the fear of loss for later. It doesn't matter. And so what? I mean, at the end of the day, can you honestly say that you did everything possible in whatever it is, what it is? There's nothing more that you could have possibly done. I think that's a really important scorecard item that we need to be mindful of that we're all going to have to look at at some point. Ooh, 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 ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Let me say one other thing, if I can, is that if you ever doubt that anything that you say and anything that you do and how you show up doesn't matter, adopt a kid. Because our daughter was never hugged, never loved. Then she would used to jump up on me and wrap her legs around me and bury her head in my chest. And she would hang on every word. Why would that be any difference between an adopted daughter and every opportunity that we have every second of our lives? There's absolutely no difference in that. So I just really feel, going back to what we talked about before, is that if we could just honor what our gifts are and we can develop those, we can show up faithfully to that and not decide the value of what we're doing. But if we can live through the revelation of the present moment where we know where we are and we know what we should do and we know how to take a stand on something, if we only do that, then it will speak to people in a way that we will not have any knowledge of, but the ripple effect of that is incalculable. And let's not decide our value in advance by the common 
benchmarks that humanity looks at it through, because I don't think that's the benchmark that we should be looking at. I think there's a whole other standard that it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter your history. All that stuff doesn't matter. What does matter is that are you showing up and are you giving the best of what you've got to humanity without any expectation of anything in return? And when you know where to be and you know what to do, then there's a divine protection against the energy suckers and the people that don't uh, believe in equal exchange. Those people are extracted out of the equation. To me, if you can do that, then at the end of the day, you can honestly say to yourself, there's nothing more that I could have possibly done. <laughs> Other than that, life's pretty simple, right? Listen, so I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I don't think you've ever said it anywhere because I haven't heard you talk about the 90% reduction, just that you needed to focus on winning this game. This was the biggest game of your lives. For sure. Did your income actually drop? By 90% because you set a new priority or did it find a way to still take care of you similar to what you were doing before? I never really thought about that. We did have some reserve. And for me, when you get the call, you do whatever's necessary. And again, you don't try to hold on to something that you think you need for later. If it needs to be applied today, you just got to do it. And But as a consequence of that, in remaining faithful to her, Here's the way I think about this, quite honestly. I'm really glad you asked this. Is that I always felt, and there's a difference between I always felt, meaning that it was gifted to me through my receivership to understand the relationship that was not wishful thinking for something to happen that I intellectually conjured up to my benefit. No, but I always felt it was revealed to me without any strings attached. I always felt that whatever this was, that it would provide an opportunity for God to show me a bigger, faster way to a better that I couldn't conceive of. That's the knowing that I had that I didn't give myself that wasn't wishful thinking or part of a barter. But I always felt that was what it was. But if it didn't end up being that, it didn't matter anyhow, because that's not why I did it. I did it to be of service and answer the call. But I feel that if we have that trust in process, as I said previously, there's got to be an inherent trust in our process, which is exactly the opposite of what human nature does. It needs a level of false security that somehow things take care of themselves. But yeah, I've had extraordinary life. Actually, my daughter just graduated from uh, you know college a couple of months ago. So it's not like I've been back in the game at the previous volume, but I'm moving my way back to the present reality of the level that I play at in a different way because I'm 12 years older than I was then. So it's a different game for me, different level of considerations, 58 and 70. Those are two different you know, points of different consideration. But the point is that the richness and quality of my life and what I've learned from this and the value that I give my clients through the counsel that I give them because of the life that I have lived, because there's nothing that I haven't seen, which means that I can see all my clients from every possible angle. And I know exactly how to engage them in a way that they will understand and be able to determine what the next reach is that we need to continue our path towards their greater future. 
So again, the richness, the monetary side of it, I can honestly say that right now the advisory has never been more prosperous because it really is. And I'm not traveling like I used to because obviously there's a COVID issue. But again, no, it's actually helped, but it was never part of the barter. And it's actually never been better, quite honestly. So thanks for asking. Yeah. And and that was the point, right? When we're bold enough to set the priority and do the right thing because it's the right thing. Yes. We're rewarded for making that choice. Yeah. And it's not just monetarily, but it's peace of mind and it's tranquility being. I think the most important thing is that, can we honestly say to ourselves, there's nothing more I could have done because I showed up faithfully and applied myself and I, I did answer the call. And if we can say that, then whatever and however life turns out, nothing more could have been expected of us. So I feel like there has to be a reconciliation of self with self with soul that makes all of this workable in some way, shape, or form. And to me, the idea of living without regrets because that you played the honorable game, to me, is the criteria that we should be continuously striving for to remain cosmically and psychically balancing the scales of being of service and abating the fear-based survival responses to chase the security of the things that that promises us that once we have them, we realize that they can't deliver and we can't force our evolution as a human. There's a natural course of evolution that we cannot skip over without risking the ability to develop and reach full maturity where our ability to produce the highest number uh, of significant goals to create a legacy that creates a case study that's worth following as to what to do will be maximized. He just told y'all to live a life that's going to be a case study, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and you oh, yeah. missed the whole thing. He slipped it in there. It was like one of those jabs where you don't even know it's coming. Channeling. Just all channeling. You never know. Oh, my goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Jeff Spencer has just gifted you some of the most amazing jewels that I've heard in a long time. Thank you so for being so generous with your time. I think you are the epitome of what a dream catcher is. You were willing to give up everything in order to actualize, realize dreams that you had. And you did it knowing that the outcome was imminent, right? And there's so much difference between being a dream chaser and a dream catcher. And I think you embody all the things that are related to being a dream catcher. And you're not selfish enough to keep it just for you, you're willing to go out and share with others. So if somebody is out there wondering if they're a good fit to work with you, who are they and what should they do? First off, I would say this is that my qualifications for a coaching relationship are not based on how big of a profile does someone have? How much money do they make? It's not about that. It's really about the person as the person. And if I feel that there's an affinity there, then there's always a way of making that happen. So if there's an inclination, you have a bit of a tug, there's some gravity to reach out, please do that and uh, not decide in advance what the criteria is. Because again, it's not about stature in worldly terms. It's not about bank accounts. It's got nothing to do with that. It's about resonance. It's about having fun. It's about making impact. It's about inspiring others. It's about accountability. It's about overcoming challenge. So please 
If you're so inspired, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Please go to www.drjeffspencer.com and you could just, in the upper right-hand corner, you can apply. That's where there's a, an online application. The application is not an obligation. It's just something I'll look at and we'll circle back with the time for us to get together and have a short conversation to explore what it is that you're looking for. And we'll see where it goes from there. Thank you, Jerome. Just a, a marvelous pleasure to have had this conversation with you and can't say enough about the, the quality of the experience. So thank you for your confidence and having me be one of your guests. For sure. It's to the listeners. Your dreams should be real. We'll chat soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.